0: Hello, it's Dave here. I just wanted to jump on real quick to let you know that this is a slightly unique episode of the show uh, in that it's not an episode of the first 10 pages. Let me explain. Uh, Before Kia and I settled on the concept of the first 10 pages, we recorded a few episodes of a show we called Interior Screenplay Podcast Day. It's basically exactly the same as the first 10 pages, except we covered the entire screenplay from start to finish. So this will be the first of two episodes we recorded uh, from that time that we will release. This one, all about the Cohen Brothers classic, Fargo. And our guest is the comedy writer, Melina Wicks. Melina has forged an impressive resume at the ABC, writing for such shows as The Weekly, The Checkout, Hard Quiz, and others. We also worked together back in 2014 on a show called The Roast. But on Wednesday, October 28, a show Melina co-created debuts on the ABC called Reputation Rehab. Here's a description. We're officially living in an outrage culture. It seems that barely a week goes by without someone getting publicly crucified in a torrent of angry tweets and media headlines for real or imagined mistakes. Reputation Rehab will tackle public shaming head-on and break through the outrage cycle with comedy comedy. ...and empathy. It is such a great premise for a show. Uh, Reputation Rehab starts October 28th... ...on the ABC and iView. Melina is one of the smartest... ...and funniest writers I've ever met... ...and had the pleasure to know... ...and uh, I'm really excited for you... ...to hear this conversation we had... ...about the movie Fargo. As always, any reviews... ...for the first 10 pages... ...wherever you get your podcast, is very welcome. Uh, if you could take the time... ...would really, really appreciate... All reviews, they really help us out with the, uh, the algorithm, whatever it is. Okay, enjoy the show. Fade in, interior screenplay podcast day. Welcome to the show. I'm David Ferrier, joined by writer Kia Wilkins. Hello, Kia.
1: Hello, great to be here.
0: Our guest today has written on several ABC shows, including The Weekly, The Checkout, and Tonightly with Tom Ballard, among others. It's Melina Wicks. Melina, hello. Thank you for doing this.
2: Hello. Thanks for having me.
0: Um, you've You've chosen Fargo, the 1996 black comedy set in Minnesota, USA, Fargo, Minnesota. Wait, it is Fargo, Minnesota, right? Not North Dakota.
2: Fargo, North Dakota. Fargo, North
0: Dakota. Okay,
2: most of the film is set in Minnesota, except for like one scene. But I read just this morning that they thought Fargo was a better name than Brainerd, which is where most of it is set.
1: (laughs) I think they were correct.
0: Fargo. I agree. Fargo, the 1996 black comedy about a pregnant police chief called upon to investigate strange murders that are the result of a plan by a desperate car salesman who hires two criminals to kidnap his wife in order to extort a hefty ransom from his wealthy father-in-law.
1: I'm uh, Jerry Lundegaard. You got the car? You bet. Brand new burnt Umber Sierra. You want your own wife kidnapped. Her dad, he's real well off. So why don't you just ask him for the money? (laughs) See, these are personal matters. Personal matters? Nine... It's Jerry. I don't know what to do. It's my wife. We gotta talk. It's something Oh, Jeez, it's
0: terrible. It's written by Joel and Ethan Cohen. It was their ninth credited screenplay and it won Best Original Screenplay at the 1997 Oscars and it is number 32 on the WGA um, their list of greatest screenplays. Melina, why did you choose this one?
2: Well, the Cohen Brothers are my favourite screenwriters and Fargo is my favourite film of theirs. So it was... Probably an obvious choice for me to revisit. Um, It was the first film of theirs that I ever saw. um, And I kind of had a strange experience the first time I watched it. um, Because I was about 15. And my mum, who I told a year earlier I wanted to be a screenwriter, um, started introducing me to good films, especially from the 40s and 70s. And one night she said, oh, there's a good film on TV. You should check it out. It's called Fargo. And at the time they'd been running ads for a film with Meg Ryan and Russell Crowe, which I've later looked up and Mm -hmm. found out is proof of life. But I assume this is the film she was talking about. So I was expecting a kind of maybe above-average thriller with some famous movie stars. And instead I'm watching this movie that's this like strange, funny, dark comedy thriller drama with people I've never heard of before. And I'm about 20 minutes in before I realise it's not the movie that I thought I was supposed to be watching, (laughs) Um, which usually means a bad experience. But in this case, I was just totally captivated by it. And by the end, it was a sort of revelation to me that people could make a film like this that was so weird and yet so satisfying from a narrative perspective. And from then I was just hooked on the Coen Brothers, went back and watched all their movies and I've loved them ever since.
0: The first time you watched this was on broadcast television. I know, with
2: know. ads and everything. It wasn't an ideal <laughs> experience, but I've watched it many times since. So I've, I've gotten the gist of how
0: it's supposed to be viewed these days. Uh, the Coen Brothers, uh, amazing uh, sibling collaborators. Before we get into it, can I just put something to both of you? Can you name some other siblings who have written
1: together? Ooh, The Wachowskis would be one that springs to mind.
0: Bang. Correct.
2: Not a movie, but I've just been watching Game of Zones finale, so the YouTube <laughs> that is written by brothers. Yes.
0: <laughs> okay. I have um, Luke and Owen Wilson. They're both credited Ooh, on yeah, uh, bottle, rocket bottle Rocket with Wes Anderson. The Wayans Brothers of <laughs> scary movie uh, fame and all those other things. Did you know I looked it up? There are six writers credited on the movie White Chicks took six writers, <laughs> um, and in the literary world, the Bronte sisters and the uh, Brothers Grimm. Um, okay, so Melina, so can you tell us a bit more about your background? You got into it a bit there about your background in writing, how you came to it, and um, and what you've been working on.
2: Yeah, um, I'm a comedy writer for television mostly, so um, as you mentioned, earlier, I've worked on a lot of topical comedy shows, like The Weekly, Checkout, um, The Roast Dave and I worked together on many years ago now. Um, so, a sort of, yeah, topical comedy. Um, a little bit of narrative as well. Um, I worked on a pilot with Nina Oyama called The Angus Project. Um, which, which was part of the Fresh Blood the initiative. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, it was Nina's baby and really an amazing um, pilot. I'm sad i sad it didn't go to series. Um, but I've always loved movies. Uh, you know, when I was a teenager in high school, I dreamed of making movies in Hollywood um, before television was good. Uh, and, yeah, I've just... That's that's pretty much it. Love writing and love comedy.
0: Predominantly at the ABC.
2: Yeah, that that's sort of where the
0: bulk of those sort of
2: topical comedy shows. So you're kind of Wednesday night entertainment shows. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been working on Planet America lately as well. Um, so in in that sort of um, yeah co- comedy news space, but a lot of different types of shows over the year in, in that
1: area. Great. It's kind of how it works in Australia, it seems, that once you're a known entity within a particular network that, you know, you get the bulk of your work in one, one place.
2: Yeah, I've and a, a particular type of show as well. You know, you sort of come to be known as someone who can do things in that space. Um, and, yeah, the kind of worlds of, of topical comedy writing and narrative don't cross over quite as much as I would like. Um, <laughs> but, but, yeah, you do sort of get a foot in a certain door and build up a lot of experience in that area and it kind of becomes your thing a bit.
0: You get typecast in the Australian <laughs> world, it sounds like. <laughs> You've done this before. Keep doing it. Yeah,
2: it's also such much. a small industry, yeah. I think, that, you know, um, Often these types of shows draw from a pool of writers who are sort of known in that area.
0: Yeah, and, and anyone, honestly, anyone who is making a living um, writing in Australia, as you said, the, the industry is so small, so whatever you're doing, it's a win. Um, <laughs> let's get into the script, the background, the unique selling points I have, that it is based on a true story, uh, at least the outline of the events. The characters themselves were an invention. I have the dialect, um, the Cohens from Minnesota, Um I have that uh, they wrote it together, the brothers, and Sam Raimi, the director, described watching the Coen's work uh, was like watching a game of badminton. Um, (laughs) I have watched an interview where Francis McDormand said there's not much improvisation. Um, It is all there on the page. Um, What about you guys? What did you have? What are some um, unique selling points for Fargo?
2: For me, having a crime story where the hero is a pregnant woman cop is immediately setting it apart from certainly any movie I'm aware of ever being made before. I mean, just the way that that changes the dynamic of the whole movie, it's really interesting. And as you said, Dave, like the accents, you know, I've seen them described as a another character in the film. It's just sort of such a unique setting and the sense of place throughout the whole film, both with the kind of um, the particular accents and the amount of comedy and character that they draw from that, but also just like there's almost a visceral sense of cold throughout the film and you see it written in the page as well. You know, characters are always shaking snow off their shoes when they go inside and de-icing their car windows and in like insane amounts of layers of clothing. Like you just get such a strong sense of this strange place that I think is considered a strange place, even by American standards. Mm. Um, Even if you're in America, it's this kind of slightly foreign pocket of the country and, yeah, I suppose from them having grown up there, that's, like, reflected so strongly and makes it such an interesting movie. I haven't seen anything
1: quite like it.
0: The word ya is uh, said 181 <laughs> times.
1: <laughs> Kia, okay, how about you? you? Uh Yeah, I think that's, um, you know, I agree with with everything that you've both pointed out. The, the thing about how cold it is and how visceral that is, I mean, it's just such a brilliant layer additional layer of physical conflict and it and it sort of elevates what is a, a relatively straightforward plot it just makes every single thing hard and i think that's true of marge's pregnancy as well you know suddenly it just adds this extra layer of difficulty and like crossing over you know over a driveway um so just the fact that everything is made a hundred times more difficult by this deep layer of snow in the film i think is a stroke of genius and um yeah, that sort of Minnesota nice that has made the uh, the film so quotable and kind of is at the core of it thematically as well, I think, about, like, smashing up purity and kind of the ugliest parts of human nature. The, the whole film is built on these kind of stark contrasts between, yeah. you know, blood and snow and, uh, you know, good and evil and cold and warmth and you know, niceness and cruelty and small town living and big city living. Um, And I just love as well that this, you know, this film defies genre. And at the time, like you can, uh, I noticed when looking through kind of some of the accolades that it received that it just, it's so confused Hollywood, like what exactly this film was. And it was, you know, marketed as a, as a thriller and a crime drama. And then it gets a golden globe nomination in, comedy and then uh william h macy is nominated for a best supporting actor um because surely he can't be the protagonist of this film uh and then Frances mcdormand wins a best lead actress uh oscar for it even though she doesn't come into the film until the second act so it just it's so defied convention and confused everyone as to what they were watching
0: Let's get into the first 10 pages, which is the important part is where, you, you know, the, if a, if someone at a studio is, um, production company is reading it, something in there has got to, got to grab you. So I'll just do a quick summary and then we'll talk about the dialogue or the big print. What about the first 10 pages hooked you and why? So, uh, we are introduced to the setting, a freezing icy flat, tiny Midwestern American town called Fargo. A car salesman named Jerry Lundegaard meets with two men with whom he's arranged to kidnap his own wife, named Jean, in an effort to extort money from his wealthy father-in-law. The agreement a new car and $40,000 upon completion of the job. They get the car up front. Following the meeting, we see more of Jerry's life. We meet his simple and subservient wife, his son and his gruff, condescending father-in-law, Wade. Over dinner, Jerry pitches uh, his investment idea to Wade. It's not the first time. Uh, $730,000 to build a large car park. He tells Wade that it could really help himself, Gene and Scotty. Wade replies that Gene and Scotty never have to worry. Um, Melina, what in the first 10 pages grabbed you? A piece of big print or dialogue? What was it?
2: Uh, There are two major things that really stood out to me. The first is the declaration in the opening frames that it's a true story um which it it isn't at at all it seems it it changed the story a lot over the years about whether it's based on any amount of truth or not but it seems like at this point it's fair to conclude the story is 100 percent made up so it's quite amazing to me and joyous that they've opened this classic movie with a prank on the audience um but i think it also has a function because it does make the more outrageous parts of the story suddenly really believable and captivating that you think it could be true so it's quite a fun trick to play well, on, on the me. audience i thought
0: it was based on uh, you know i was watching an interview and i thought it was yeah it was based on a true story they just changed all the uh, well like the, the the incident happened they've just fabricated all the characters and the way it happened
2: yeah i'm, I'm pretty sure it's all different made up versions of it. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah
0: okay well i'm an idiot <laughs> well they've just
1: they kept changing their story they just kept they they seem to enjoy screwing with people but okay. i think as you said Melina, it's uh and, and they've said it themselves that it gives them it gives a certain permission to the filmmaker to kind of go on these tangents that people might not otherwise go with because they're like, well, if it's if it's if this is how it really went down, then this is fascinating.
0: So, Melina, yeah. are, you, are you referring specifically to the text that fades in over black? This is a true story. The events depicted in this film took place in Minnesota in 1987. At the request of the survivors, the names have been changed. Out of respect for the dead, the rest has been told exactly as it occurred.
2: Yeah, so it's almost like a sort of Star Wars opening declaration big. of the story, but it, it does seem to be based on all available evidence to be a prank um, and just something that they made up for fun. Uh, which feels very Coen Brothers.
0: Kia, yeah, how about you? What, what grabbed you in the first 10 pages?
1: Uh, the, the thing that leapt out for me was the setup of Jerry as a character, and it's this small thing in the script, in the big print, where the very first thing you see him do is write his own name down in a registry and then cross it out and write his fake alias. And it's just like
0: can't we're even meeting get a character.
1: Right. Yeah, he fucks it up from the very... Get go. He just, you know, and I think that is such a brilliant uh, telling thing that just gives you everything you need to know about Jerry and, and how this caper is going to go down. So for me, that was where I was like, yes, this is where we're in.
0: They set up that he gets things wrong pretty quickly with that. And then also, just as soon as he meets with Carl and uh, Gare. The pronunciation might drift a little throughout this podcast, so I apologise. Where there's been a misunderstanding about what time they're supposed to meet up. So, immediately, you're like, well, this is a guy who gets things wrong. Um, And things don't go to plan.
2: Yeah, I love that opening scene as an introduction, because the kind of awkward and aggressive back and forth between Jerry and the criminals sets up their dynamic, sets up all of their characters so well, is a fun way to reveal the plan that establishes the story that's going to set the film in motion. And also, as you say, the fact that they screw up the time it foreshadows right from the get-go that this is just not going to go well. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and every part of this is going to fall Everything apart. Everything that can go wrong will go wrong. And also, just Jerry's demeanor about the whole thing—it's sort of—it's uh, it's like he's recruiting um, some people to help him move house. The, the way he's—oh <laughs> you know, no, it's all—it's real sound. It's all worked out. Um, yeah, yeah, he's, he's very so, detached like, from the moral to, implications of it all. You want your own wife he? kidnapped? Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right, let's move on to Act One. So, the Act One summary: we see that Carl and Gear do not get along. Carl is chatting; Gear is not. Carl tries to extend an olive branch by saying he knows a place they can get laid. At Jerry's workplace, a car dealership, we see how he lies to a customer about the cost of some true coat sealant. The following day, Wade, his father-in-law, calls to tell Jerry that his colleague, Stan Grossman, has looked into the investment opportunity, and it looks good. Jerry tries to reach Carl and Gere to call off the kidnapping, but can't get in touch with him. Jerry gets a call from a banker who is chasing some incomplete documents for a $320,000 loan Jerry has taken out. That same day, the kidnapping goes ahead. Gene, uh, Jerry's wife, puts up a fight but is ultimately taken. And at the meeting, uh, in another location where Jerry is meeting with his father-in-law, he discovers he won't be loaned the money for the investment but will be given a finder's fee. Despite his pleas, this is the only deal Jerry will get. Uh, Later on, Jerry arrives home to discover his wife has been kidnapped and calls his father-in-law. Comments, observations, notable dialogue or big print from Act 1, Melina?
2: There's a few things that stood out to me in Act One. The first is how much, and this happens right from the opening scene, they get comedy through repetition. And I think this is probably partly a a Minnesota dialect thing and partly just a Coen Brothers style thing, but but just as an example where Jerry is talking to Wade about the deal that he wants him to invest in. And he's saying, you know, "I, I understand it's a lot of money, a heck of a lot, what did you say you were gonna put there? A lot. It's limited. It's a limited. I know it's a lot. I mean, a parking lot. Yeah, well, $750,000 is a lot. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah. And it's just like, just this <laughs> yeah. constant repetition of words in the initial scene they're talking about, you know, I thought we were meeting at 7.30 and this repetition of 7.30 that they keep coming back to. And it's just a thing they return to over and over again through the film to get comedy, um, which is something that I hadn't really noticed explicitly until I really focused in on watching it. Um, and another motif that really stood out in the first act is this idea of undermined plans um, and this is one example of that when jerry is rehearsing his distraught phone call to his father-in-law oh, when his no. wife is kidnapped and he's practicing he's practicing he's finally ready to make the call and he gets on the phone and he has to interrupt himself and say oh yeah wait, gusterson please because he doesn't have a direct line to the father-in-law so even <laughs> on the smallest scale I know, it's a sign of disrespect between the father-in-law and him. But even on that small scale, everything that he's planning gets undermined and interrupted in different ways. And that's a motif that I think recurs throughout the whole film just no, in just, a really funny way.
0: Certainly early on in this um, story, um, and maybe it is a Coen Brothers thing, are any of the characters likeable? Because I don't think, I'm just thinking, I don't think any of them are like uh, are, are, are the characters people who are put up to the audience as like here's who you like they're all kind of a bit off in their own way
2: well i think it's an interesting thing about this film which kia pointed out before which is that the hero of the film isn't introduced until the second act like marge is incredibly likable but her yeah, and all yeah, of yeah. her likable associates are nowhere to be seen until we're a third of the way into the movie
0: yeah absolutely um kia what about you
1: yeah well i guess um piggybacking on that the the idea that, well, you come into the film basically straight into an inciting incident. You don't really get to see much of the status quo or who Jerry is. And it's quite interesting to set up a character doing a terrible, awful thing and then showing us his normal world and just who this guy is on a day-to-day basis, what his home life is. Yeah, so giving that his son kind of a and- Yeah, yeah. And, and it's interesting to tell the story that way. Yeah. Um, so that you're you're kind of invested in the crime story before you're invested in the character, um, and yeah, I think just the the sort of likable protagonist uh, at when this was made in the in the late nineties, I don't think you would have found many mainstream Hollywood films where the where the protagonist well where, where the antagonist is actually the more heroic, noble character, and and the person that we're actually following um, across the entire plot is this person doing an awful awful thing to his wife
0: let's move on to act two uh okay the summary so at night we see carl and gear having uh kidnapped Jean. they're driving along a pitch black isolated road they are pulled over by a police officer whom gear ends up shooting in the head a car passes by and witnesses what's happened so Kier pursues eventually murdering the two witnesses who have crashed their car a short while further up the road We then finally meet uh, Brainerd Police Chief Marge Gunderson. This happens on page 33, Um, so we do have to wait a while. So she's in bed with her husband Norm. She is called to the murder scene and we discover she's seven months pregnant and a very good police officer, particularly when uh, put alongside her colleagues because she immediately deduces how the murders played out and gets a clue from the murdered police officer's note about the perpetrator's license plate. So then uh, across Act 2, just to sum it all up, we see the walls close in for Jerry because everything just keeps going wrong um, thanks to his bad decisions. Carl and Gier's actions and Marge's good police work, which takes her from her hometown to Minnesota and back. Uh, Jerry continues to be pursued by the loan company and Carl demands the full $80,000 in ransom because of the murders which have taken place. Jerry does get his father-in-law, Wade, to agree to pay the ransom, which we find out Jerry has inflated to a million dollars. He's told Wade that, in fact, the ransom is a million, not 80,000. Jerry insists that he's the one who has to do the handoff, but after listening in on a phone call with Carl about the location, Wade takes off with the money to get his daughter back. The meeting does not go well. Wade is murdered and Carl is shot in the cheek, um, after which he takes off with the $1 million in cash. So act two, uh, comments, observations, notable big print or dialogue, Melina?
2: One thing that stands out to me at um, this point, and I think we touched on it earlier, the idea of the sort of contrast in the movie between sort of good and evil um, and sort of wholesomeness and you know, seediness um, you really start seeing that once Marge is introduced into the plot, um, these side-by-side contrasts with scenes that are placed up against each other. Um, so there's just one example um, in Act 2. We see at one point, Jerry hasn't thought at all about the human cost of his plan. Um, he was referring to the ransom handover as my deal, like it's a business deal. He's like, wait, this is my deal. Um, and he only connects that it, it'll be traumatic for his son, for his mother to go missing uh, when a colleague raises it. So when Wade's business partner, Stan, says, oh, and Scotty, is he going to be all right? And Jerry says, oh, yeah, geez, Scotty, I'll go talk to him. It's like clearly the not first occurred time to it's him. occurred to him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And when he goes and talks to Scotty, he uses literally the same language to Scotty uh, when he says at the end, that's the best we can do here in terms of not bringing the police in that he uses when he's ripping off um, the customers at his car dealership earlier in the film when he says 100 the best we can do here and he's ripping them off about the true coding. So just this kind of very cold, calculating, business-like mentality that Jerry has towards his own family. Um, then we cut to the cruelty of Carl and Grimsrud as so they're watching the captured Jean helplessly run away, trying to run away with a hood on her head, you know, in the middle of nowhere, you know, about to run into trees in the snow. And in the next scene we cut to police headquarters where Norm has brought lunch for Marge and Marge has brought Norm worms for fishing and you just sort of see the simple kindness (laughs) of a husband and wife who love each other and just in this everyday thoughtful way are looking out for each other and you start noticing all throughout the second and third act that you see these kind of sequences where you have scenes placed side by side where you see Jerry and or and Grimsrud being horrible (laughs) in various ways with Marge and the people around her being just really sweet and caring in an everyday
0: way. Um, i just know that, yeah, Grimsrud is uh, Gear's last name. I'll start referring to him with that because that is how he's named in the script. Um, here's, here's a question for you. Just speaking of Marge and her husband, Norm, um, so I know that it's not really expressly written out in the screenplay, but I watched an interview and Francis McDormand, who plays Marge, Um, she and the actor who plays Norm had worked out a backstory for their relationship, and it was that uh, Norm probably was a police officer too at one point, um, but he quit, uh, and that's where they met. But he quit. Marge was just a really good cop, so she stayed, and now he stays at home and um, paints his birds. When writing (laughs) something like this, or when just writing in general, um, Kia, I'll ask you this. Do you ever write that sort of backstory or do you ever, do you kind of sketch it out? Because you come into this with there's a lot of assumed sort of uh, unwritten details um, about this relationship. And I think it's sort of like, it respects the audience that you don't need it spoon-fed to you. But in mm-hmm. the writer's work, will you ever just sort of sketch that out and go, how did these two meet?
1: I mean, in broad brushstrokes, but I'm certainly not one who writes reams and reams of... Um, You know childhood stories and and things like that to to develop a character um but i mean absolutely i'm sure that that adds layers that um you know that would make films better off for having done that work but um yeah i also think there's something to be said for leaving room for actors to kind of do that exploration uh and also well i guess when i'm thinking about television more so as well like there's almost a benefit to you in leaving some of that stuff unexplored because when you're trying to generate new story and new angles for you know potentially future seasons um you want to you know, you want to have left yourself some wriggle room that to... That might
0: be a space you could explore, you could
1: play. Yeah, yeah. No, but okay. I guess in a film there's there's probably more reason to do that heavy lifting um, in the scripting stage. But I think it's it's really interesting, the, the split between writers who feel compelled to know really intimately everything about their characters and where they've come from and, and some people who don't find that necessary at all. Mm.
0: How about um, comments, observations? Any notable moments for you, Kia?
1: I mean, we've got to talk about the the Mike Yanagita scene, right? That's... uh...
0: Yeah. Okay. You two are smarter than me. Please explain why that is part of this story. (laughs) Kia, you go first.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, like, I guess I'm basing a lot of this on... Uh, other things that I've read about this scene as well because I think it's so fascinating and and I love that it just caused so much confusion and debate um, and that the Coen brothers have been quite coy about exactly what their intentions were I think the you know the cleanest explanation that there is just on a pure plot level is that it is the first time that it seems to occur to Marge that people are not always what they seem and that, um, this very sweet, uh, high school friend actually had a very different intention to the one that she thought, uh, and that seems to prompt her to reconsider whether Jerry told her the truth. And so she goes back and and it prompts her to, um, to look at jerry again as a as a potential suspect in this case so i think that's what it's doing potentially on a plot level but then i also think there is an interesting um tie back to what we were talking about before with the uh opening the film with the fact that this is a true story and it buys you this room to sort of go well this is just sort of the weird random shit that goes on in real life where you just do just get a call out of the blue and then you have a strange interaction with someone you haven't thought about for years and then they don't really um, have any great knock-on effect in in how the rest of proceedings unfold. But um, it was just like a, a weird little interval. Uh, and so I think you, you kind of go with it in the film for that reason as well because you're like, well, sure, why not?
0: Melina? But-
2: yeah, I think that that's a popular interpretation about the idea that Mike's deception leads her to rethink Jerry and go back to see him again um, makes a lot of sense in terms of its sort of function in the plot I think the other thing that it serves to do as well is we sort of see these examples throughout the film where Marge's optimistic outlook on life and, and her sort of fundamental belief in the good of people um, gets tested and you know this isn't the the sort of ultimate um, point in of this occurring in the film, um, and we'll probably get to it a bit later in the sort of um, third act and closing as well, where you know she really sort of reaches a low. But I think you see these points throughout the film where people behaving in these really awful ways, and her sort of coming into contact with that um, in a way that you know she presumably doesn't usually in her sort of small town police force, because obviously some police officers see lots of awful things, but that's not her usual kind of work we see her get tested and her worldview get tested. And I think this is also an example of that, where someone who she gives the benefit of the doubt to and she has no reason to think, you know, is anything other than a nice guy is actually lying to her about something really awful.
0: Is that her character flaw? Like, is that the flaw in her worldview is, at the, at the start, the too much faith in humanity?
2: I wouldn't describe it as a flaw. I think it's just, uh, um, it's her... I think it's what's good about her, really. And I think, you know, her kind of goodness is tested by all these horrible things happening. And part of the sort of arc for her throughout the film is not just solving this case, but sort of having it not corrupt her as she goes about doing it.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's not kind of a a journey in in a traditional sense of it. It's sort of that she holds strong... To her convictions, and sort of finishes in in a a fairly similar place to where she she
0: starts. Does she she, quote unquote? Is not the saying that like your character has to die at the end, or be like you know be forever changed?
1: but is that well, I think the point that's why one, she's that not she... the protagonist of yeah. this story because it's Jerry that is the one that goes on that transformative journey. For Marge, she's sort of a foil and an antagonist to Jerry more than she is going on her own transformational journey.
0: And she's tested but she comes out clean and yeah. still the same. Wow. Um, very interesting. How about um, the, the similarities between Carl and Jerry in that they both – are constantly undermined. Um, they can't get any respect and nothing seems to go right for either of them. <laughs> sort of like Carl is a more sort of, more just, I don't know, they're both evil, but Carl is a bit more, is a more violent version. Melina?
2: I think that's a really good observation. I didn't even really think about Carl that way because he's sort of caught up on the other side of, a, a, you know, you sort of got two sets of antagonists really. You've got Marge coming from the good side and, Carl and Grims would come from the bad side, but you're right, that they're both just constantly undermined and disrespected by everyone around yeah. them and can't really seem to get anything going. And it's interesting that he's the one. I found it sort of, I, I was trying to figure out after I watched it, there's a whole sort of um, strain through the film where um, Shep Proudfoot, who Jerry works with at the auto dealership yeah, and who, who put, put Jerry in touch. Yeah. in touch with these criminals, um, repeatedly says he doesn't know Carl. Doesn't vouch for Carl. He only vouches for Grimsrud, which is,
0: who is the strange. Because one.
2: <laughs> yes, <laughs> and and behaves you know the worst. You know, is sort of needlessly escalates things on a number of occasions. Um, I mean, you could make the argument that Carl is the one who screws up the encounter with the police officer in the beginning, but Grimsrud still kills the wife at the end for you know no real reason. Um, so you know, I, I think it's sort of we are set up to sort of see Carl as a sort of outsider and a loser, even though Grim's is actually terrifying. But I'm not sure necessarily all that much more competent.
0: <laughs> what about you, Kia? Uh, I'll just flag that we are going to have to take a break in a couple of minutes. Um, so what about you uh, on the the similarities between Kia? I mean, between Carl and Jerry?
1: Yeah, I hadn't I hadn't really considered. That either, but they do sort of have that little man syndrome, both of them. Um, and I guess Jerry's angle is that I guess he's just, he's a bit more pathetic. He doesn't, uh, and Carl seems to sort of have an, have an end game in mind, whereas Jerry doesn't seem to um, think more than like the next move ahead and has no, no sort of uh, perspective on the consequences of what he's doing and can't foresee that these things are going to spiral out of control.
0: Also, no no one seems to be able to describe what Jerry looks like. They just, I mean, sorry, Carl. They just say he's funny (laughs) looking guy. More than one (laughs) funny looking guy. You know, (laughs) in a funny way. Um, All right, we'll take a break. We'll be right back. (laughs) Um, Okay, cool. We are back. So let's move on to Act 3. Let's summarise it first. In Act 3, a chatty older man informs a deputy about a rude patron he served at a bar who said he was staying out by the lake. Marge returns to Jerry's dealership following her catch-up with her old school pal uh, to follow up on some details about the suspect's car, which had dealer plates, Uh, and while being questioned, Jerry runs. Carl, with a big gash in his cheek from the gunshot, buries the bulk of the $1 million uh, to hide from uh, Gier from, uh, how do you say his name, Grimsrud? Grimsrud. Grimsrud, Melina? I think so. Grimsrud. Um, buries the bulk of the $1 million from Grimsrud and returns to the cabin to give him his cut of the $80,000, $40,000 cash. Upon returning, he finds that Grimsrud has murdered Gene uh, for seemingly no reason at all. He goes to leave, but a disagreement about the ownership of the car leads to Grimsrud murdering Carl with an axe and putting him in a wood chipper. Marge checks out the lake area the chatty old man mentioned and happens upon the car from the dealership where she finds Grimsrud disposing of Carl and Jean's body in the wood chipper. She shoots him in the leg and apprehends him. Jerry is arrested at a motel, uh, seemingly trying to flee, and Marge returns home to her husband, still seven months pregnant. Uh, Melina, Act 3. What about it stood out to you?
2: Um, well, obviously, the classic woodchipper scene.
0: <laughs> that, that is very, one of the big sort of famous moments that it, people it, tend to remember.
2: It, it is a, a quite unforgettable scene. It was visually, you know, almost beautiful while being awful and disgusting at the same time. It's a very striking image. Um, but looking back at it, actually, what stood out to me about that moment, because obviously the, the image is what's kind of really stuck in my mind and everyone's mind. Um, forever about that film. But re-watching it and sort of paying more attention, I thought it was a really nice touch that when Marge tries to shout out to Grimsrud to arrest him, he can barely hear her above the woodchipper. Mm. And she's sort of trying to like shout and gesticulate and point to her badge on a um, furry hat to sort of you know, be like, I'm a cop, I'm about to arrest you. And just another moment that sort of contrasts between the brutality of the woodchipper and the quiet resolve of Marge was just this sort of nice comedic touch, even though it's like the dramatic... Penultimate moment of the film, um, and another thing which stood out to me, which I, I was sort of alluding to um, before, was at sort of, Act Two and the Mike andigator moment. Was when Marge is arrested, Grimsrud, and she's driving him to meet the ambulance because um, he's been shot in the leg, um, and she's just kind of thinking and reflecting on everything that's happened. Um, and he's sitting in silence as he does throughout pretty much the whole movie. And she's saying, you know, all this kind of, and for what? For a little bit of money. There's more to life than money, you know. Don't you know that? And here you are, and it's a beautiful day. Well, I just don't understand it. And she's succeeded in solving the crime and catching the murderer successfully. And it's actually her lowest point in the movie, which I think is quite interesting, just before the end of the film. And I think it's this moment where just sort of coming in contact with all of these corrupted, broken people doing all these horrible things. And you find
0: out it's just for money. That there's no yeah and bigger
2: it feels like her resolve even though she's won, is is about to break and she's about to potentially lose by losing her sort of faith and her outlook um and then we see again the sort of contrast between Jerry's very undignified arrest um when they catch him and then that's sort a of final closing scene where Marge is back home with Norm and you know they're having this like it's another sweet loving scene in their home and the, you know, she's congratulating him for getting his painting on the stamp and being so warm and supportive. And then they sort of looking, you know, referring to and looking forward to the sort of oncoming birth of their child in two months time. So it's the innocence implied in that new life. Um, it really stood out to me as just like a really lovely way to end the film um, where, you know, you have everything that's happened in the film weighing on Marge in this really sort of intense way and yet she's still, a, like, still able to resolve it when she goes home and sort of recenters what's important to her and her life and what's real to her in her life.
0: What about you, Kia?
1: Yeah, I think those are really, really interesting insights. I hadn't kind of thought about um, Marge's lowest point being at that moment, but, yeah, it is sort of where her optimism is really rocked, and I think that's uh, something the Coen brothers do so well across the majority of their work is that, at the end of the day it all just feels absolutely senseless and it is you know it's an ordinary so many of their films are an ordinary person making a bad decision and then it just spirals out of control when they get sucked into this sort of dark side of and dark underbelly of of humanity Uh, and I just love the way they sort of set up all of these dominoes and then in the third act they all just you know it starts to fall and you can't you can't back out at that point as all of these misunderstandings and near misses they all just start to um fall in on each other and that scene i think is so the woodchipper scene that um you were talking about melina is just so iconic and again it's another one where the the landscape and the physical environment just makes something that in in so many other kind of cop movies or crime stories is is sort of the basic arrest. You know, it's a chase and it's just um, pin the criminal. She has the upper hand. She's got the gun. She's coming up behind him. But because of this landscape and trudging through the snow and this um, loud wood chipper, the environment um, makes what should be a fairly straightforward thing so so hard and so complicated, um, which I think, you know, speaks to the to the whole story is something that could have been quite simple and straightforward and, and cleanly done, just turned into this mess with a huge body count.
0: Do you think they missed out on an idea of doing an all-out chase through the snow with seven-month pregnant Marge <laughs> leaping over no, car bonnets no, and climbing no. up trees?
1: They definitely made the right choice, I think. <laughs> um, and I just love that, you know, we're left with a, a briefcase um, full of money in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, which, who's uh, going to find Noah, it? Noah Hawley then picked up for the Fargo TV series which was a stroke of genius as well I think
0: Oh I did not know that who who's that Who's Noah Hawley
1: He's the uh, showrunner on the Fargo TV series and that's sort of where season one of that show kicks off is um, someone finds you know.
0: that cash.
1: Yeah it's, I mean it's not from memory it's not the inciting incident but that occurs in the first episode and, and it's sort of a nice little throwback to this briefcase left in the middle of nowhere
0: That's brilliant. Um, Okay, so if we uh, had to choose one thing, one piece of dialogue or one piece of big print from the entire screenplay put you on the spot to make you choose one thing, what would it be, Melina?
2: Well, I do love that closing scene of the film with Marge and Norm. I just think it's the scene in and of itself encapsulates what works so well about the whole film. It's sweet without being corny and it's sincere but it's also really funny um, and it really sort of balances out you know this sort of quite sordid story in terms of the crime element of it with these sort of horrible psychopaths um, but sort of good people that leaves the film with a sort of ultimately optimistic note about all the bad things that happen in it and just in particular like the dialogue um, in that scene the exchange where um, Norm reveals that he's gotten his painting on the three cent stamp and Marge says Norm, that's terrific, the small print. Norm tries to suppress a smile of pleasure. It's just the three cent. It's terrific. Houtman's blue-winged teal got the 29 cent. People don't much use the three cent. Oh, for Pete's sake, of course they do. Every time they raise the darn postage, people need the little stamps when they're stuck with a bunch of the old ones. It's just like classic poems where, you know, it's sweet, but it's also, you know, so silly and it's kind of lame but also they embrace the lameness and mm-hmm. it's just I think it's perfectly written
0: I love that scene Norm, and... Norm gets an arc <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah that's great it, 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 sorry I cut you off there was there anything else you would add
2: no I just love it as an ending to the film I just think it wraps everything up in such a satisfying way what about without you? betraying the fundamentals of the characters
1: Yeah. what about you Kia? I think uh i think you mentioned this moment earlier melina the uh the pivot in the scene where marge has just confronted this uh you know this horrific crime scene and then her mind drifts to like whether the bait shop is open and whether she can pick up some worms for norms and it it, <laughs> it just turns on a dime that scene where you know the domestic smashes up against this horrific crime scene and i think to me that little moment in there that little pivot in that scene kind of is is a perfect encapsulation of what makes this film special
0: i love the uh the chatty older man because it fills in a um it fills in a gap of where like after the fact because we find we don't see carl and Grimsrud for a while but then we find carl at a show with a, a another sex worker he's on a date with And then later on, this man fills in the gap of where, like, of sort of what's been going on in the meantime, where he describes this encounter with him, and then it also gives the clue which leads Marge to driving around the lake where she spots the car, which is sort of like that's the major thing that that gets the um gets the climax wrapped up, and it's also just like it's. Everything about the um, dialogue in the, in, the mo- in, the movie, in the screenplay to this point, it's all just on show at its best with this deputy talking to this chatty old man. I love the way that it says in the big print, they stand stiffly, arms down at their sides and breathe steaming and breath streaming out their parker hoods. Each has an awkward leaning away posture, head drawn slightly back and chin tucked in to keep his face from protruding into the cold. Um, it's just excellent.
2: I love that scene too. And it reminds me of what I love about that opening scene as well, which is that they're such good writers that they can have these scenes that are effectively just big chunks of exposition about the film and what's going on, but they write it so well that it's like incredibly entertaining dialogue and it doesn't feel remotely like you're just being told,
0: here's an important part of the plot that you need to know. (laughs) And the the repetition as comedy with the concept Mm -hmm. like, he calls me a jerk and I said, the last guy who told me a jerk is dead now. Um uh, the yeah the the repetition was excellent. Um all right well the trope tally um I wasn't really paying attention for any of these did anyone notice any sort of uh, screenwriting tropes used in this screenplay?
1: I mean anything that exists in there I I don't think would have been a trope in 96 and I think the whole brilliance of this film is that it is subversive at every at every turn so it's it's kind of an anti-trope film where it, it deliberately turns any possible homes for a trope on their head
0: there's no voiceover there's no I suppose we meet one of the main characters when they're asleep which I think arguably is a trope you introduce a character by having them wake up what do you think
1: yeah Oh, potentially who's who's that, that we waking she's up?
0: called in the middle of the night
1: oh yeah of course yeah. the the phone call in the dark yeah that's potentially okay. a trope
0: that's a soft
1: one on the trope
0: tally <laughs> Melina did you, anything anything that you've observed that each uh, feels like a screenwriting trope
2: not really I suspect that they employ a lot of Minnesota tropes in the
0: way that they write the characters <laughs> but um <laughs> yeah but well I mean they would all go straight over uh, all our heads yeah um, all right, well, then they've done pretty well um final thoughts. here's one for you um if Jerry really wanted to, he could easily have tracked down Carl and Grimsrud right to call off the kidnapping um and that sort of bothers me that he that he didn't
1: <laughs>
0: what do you think Melina
2: um, yeah, I mean, it does feel like he was holding on to the idea that he could get the money um you know, and it was really when that fell apart at the last minute. I mean, one thing that's interesting is he has a lot of schemes on the go at once to try and get a lot of money. He seems to be doing some kind of loan fraud. He's still trying to get the money from his father-in-law. So, yeah, I, I agree. I don't think he was really all that concerned about avoiding the kidnapping. Yeah. The other thing, um, final thought um, for me that stood out to me was they never tell you why he needs the money.
0: No. They don't. It's not and all just for this. And like and the car park thing, obviously, definitely does exist. But what's he going for this other loan for with the three hundred twenty thousand dollars when he's trying to extort enough for the car park from his father in law? Um, surely that I mean that's obviously intentional, right?
1: It just tells you that this guy makes bad decision after bad decision like he's got himself in in trouble with some other scheme and now he's hatched another scheme to get himself out of it and if he had gotten away with this one there would have been more to come just Uh, doesn't learn yeah because
2: it's like if if he got the money from his father-in-law for the parking lot would he have called off the the crime and was he ever going to build a parking lot or was that another scam because if he was not going to get the money from his father-in-law and then he gets a million dollars through this kidnapping of his wife and then suddenly has the money to buy a parking lot. You would think that that would raise some questions for the father-in-law who's very aware of both of those things occurring. But yeah, I guess the whole point is that this isn't a guy who thinks things through. No. So there's no, no need for the Cohen brothers to think it through either.
0: Well, that's what I wondered was that maybe he was so blinded by when, um, when uh, uh, Wade calls up and says, hey, it looks like this investment's a good idea. Do you want to come in? He was so blindsided by that that... Any thought of continuing to sort of stop the kidnapping of his own wife just left his own head. He just saw the dollar signs and was completely distracted by that. But who knows?
1: Um, well, the flow of dramatic tension through that sequence is really interesting. Like in another film, I'm not sure he wouldn't would have gotten away with it because he sort of goes to Shep, vaguely tries to call it off. Then we go to um, to the scene with Wade, where he basically gets cut out of his own deal, as he sees it. Uh, and then the kidnapping goes down, I think, is the order of events. Uh, whereas, yeah, I think a lot of other filmmakers would have gone at it where he tries to call it off. Then, yeah, when Wade um, when Wade screws him over, he deliberately, like, he knowingly puts the wheels back in motion. But it all just kind of happens out of his control in this version.
0: Um, any? Uh, sorry, one, one sec, guys. Hey, I'm so sorry. I'm just recording something. I'll be done in right <laughs> two Housemate. Um, any other final thoughts or observations um, from either of you, Kia? Uh,
1: I think one one very small thing which I find really intriguing about this screenplay is just the scene headers. They are, I've never seen scene headers written the way they do in this screenplay they are so uh and maybe it's because they knew they were directing it so they didn't feel any need to kind of clarify where they were but um they are the most vague scene headers i've ever ever encountered
0: yeah it just says carl's car road outside yeah
1: or sometimes just even a character's name like this is who we're with kind of irrelevant (laughs) where we are or you know it gives you a camera angle through a windscreen or you know things like that
0: uh how about you melina
2: um, one thing I observed in the watching the movie again, which, um, cause the, it's translated very literally, like there isn't a lot in the finished film that you don't see like clearly in the script. Um, but the one thing that was missing that I noticed in the, um, film version that's obviously a directorial flourish is that they are all eating burgers in nearly every scene where food is being eaten. With one exception of the cafeteria, <laughs> yes. um, and to the extent that in the first scene with Derry's family, uh, they let their son leave dinner before finishing his burger at home, so he can go eat McDonald's with his friends, um, eat a burger <laughs> in another location. So that was pretty much the only thing that stood out to me as a as a um, flourish that was added after the fact that wasn't rooted in the
0: original screenplay. Right, but there is some of that. Like in every scene. Norm, Marge's husband, is either eating or sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, amazing. Just their, yeah, their appetite for buffets. Um, yeah, it's a really great detail. Um, okay, well, we're about to wrap up. One final thing I just want to start asking about each of these screenplays that we do is, would a mobile phone have ruined this story? I think yes. <laughs> if, if Jerry had Carl's phone number, he, he could just text him. Don't kidnapping's (laughs) off. Yeah. But would he have? Well, that's a whole, that's a very interesting question. Would he have? Um, Okay, well, Melina Weeks, Kia Wilkins, thanks so much.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Melina.
0: Fade to Black, the end.